Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're going to break down the fifth episode of Star Trek Lower Decks called Cupid's Errant Errol. For this episode, we'll summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end our podcast with the most recent Star Trek news. And actually, we have quite a bit of it today. And that's a good thing. (laughs) Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. However, rest assured, we will not divulge any of the many jokes or Star Trek reference gags in the episode. So those moments will be fresh for you when you get a chance to see it for yourself. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis. Okay. The USS Vancouver, a Parliament-class ship, partners with the Cerritos on the demolition of a moon that is endangering the planet Mixus Three. The Vancouver seems to gleam with an air of importance that produces eye-rolling from Captain Freeman. However, this high-class ship cannot resolve a diplomatic crisis, which the Vancouver is undertaking in their conference room filled with irate Mixians. Not everyone is disappointed to visit the Vancouver, though. Instance Rutherford and Tindy lament the ramshackle nature of the Cerritos and geek out about all the engineering gizmos available on the Vancouver. Ensign Boymuller's interests are more romantic in nature as he meets up with his girlfriend of one month. (laughs) (laughs) She's named Lieutenant Barbara Brinson. Ensign Mariner is adamant Barb is a fabrication, a a holodeck simulation created by her deprived best friend. But not only does Barb turn out to be real, she also is head over heels attracted to Boimler, purring about how he radiates primal confidence. <laughs> yeah. However, any confidence Boimler has disappeared with the sudden arrival of Lieutenant Jet, the broad-chested old flame of Barb's. As the two go off to reconnect and recalibrate the containment field, Boimler's jealousy gets stoked, and so does Mariner's curiosity about Barb. Meanwhile, Tindy and Rutherford meet with Lieutenant Rahm Emanuel Docent Jr., a Vancouver officer who recruits them to run diagnostics. As a prize, he offers this to the yet-to-be-released T-88 scanner, which is more than enough incentive for the, for the instance. The two immediately snap into competition, adamant to take home the new piece of technology to their respective teams. Now, Mariner is incredibly suspicious of Boimler's bow, as she feels he's way out of her league. Her past informs her opinion, as Mariner recalls in a flashback her time aboard the USS Quito. With a new hairstyle and a DS9-style uniform, she's seen in happier times, chatting it up with her coupled-up friends. Things go from lovey-dovey to horrifying, as it turns out one of them is a shapeshifter who devours his mate. 
Meanwhile, Captain Freeman seems to have found a solution to all of the Mixian's religious, agricultural, and ancestral worries to blowing up the moon. However, one disgruntled member remains, saying the implosion will lead to the destruction of his planet. He throws a tantrum, yelling that Starfleet will have their hands covered in blood as red as his skin. <laughs> yeah, and the irony of it is, is that he's talking about this civilization that's going to be destroyed, and yet it's going to, if they don't do anything about it, it's going to lead to the destruction of another planet. Right, right. Boimler's solution to possibly competing with Jet predictably doesn't go well. He literally crashes her briefing, embarrasses both Barb and himself. Um, he even then tries to upgrade his image by mimicking every cool figure from Earth's history. The result is a leather, leatherman, jacket-wearing Boimler sauntering into the mess hall only to trip and cover his girlfriend in beer. Mariner is also continuing to spiral, taking hair samples and fashioning a cork board that theorizes Barb is everything from a Cardassian spy to a transporter clone. It clears no matter what she is, Barb is getting frustrated with both of them. Now, Barb finally confronts Boimler about his weird behavior after he tries to catch her and Jet after he hears them making suggestive noises. After admitting his worry about her leaving him, she reaffirms her feelings. However, Mariner breaks up the couple's reunion when she pulls down Barb's pants in an attempt to expose her as a reptoid. Of course, Mariner's theory is proven false, but her suspicions are revived when she finds the husk of a parasite which causes her to take off to disrupt the happy couple who have walked off arm in arm to an orbital platform. She passes Tindy and Rutherford, who burst into Lieutenant Dosen's office to find out who won the T-88. It turns out they both did, along with a spot on the Vancouver. He writes up a transfer request for the two of them to work on the ship pending their approval. Though the duet give it a lot of thought, they ultimately decide to stick with the Cerritos, happy with the jobs of keeping the ship together. Unfortunately... That is not the response Docent wanted to hear, as he angrily responds that the transfer will go through anyway. Rutherford and Tindy steal the pad from the irate officer, only to discover that he intends to swap places with them on the Cerritos. He tearfully throws himself at their feet, fried by the epic action and looking for a simpler day-to-day -day schedule. They agree to forget all of this happened in exchange for deleting the transfer request as well as two T-88s. The instant seemed to be doing a better job at negotiating than Captain Freeman, who is still having issues with one of the Mixians. As he shouts invectives about the Prime Directive... Which don't make any sense. <laughs> he accidentally reveals that he and his wife are the only two people on the planet in question. Fed up with this nonsense, Freeman orders the moon's destruction 
ending her diplomatic negotiations. Things are getting explosive on the orbital platform as well when Mariner walks in on a fully nude Boimler. As the two fumble past the awkward moments, she tries to show him the exoskeleton, only for him to shrug her off as yet another ranting. He gets knocked out when the platform shifts and Barb arrives, culminating that an all-out brawl between, between the two women. They exchange punches and words, and in turn, it turns out that Mariner's paranoia about Barb being a parasite is reciprocated. The two end up coming around embarrassing with um, embarrassing Boimler stories, realizing how much in common they have. Unfortunately, Mariner's scanner still shows a parasite in their midst that turns out to be coming from an unlikely source, Boimler. The parasite in question has been living on the back of its head for the past month, secreting pheromones to make their host irresistible. Mm -hmm. Though Barb affirms the sweet scent had nothing to do with her feelings for Boimler, she still breaks up with him, citing the extra work she'll be doing to research this romantic bug. All is not lost, though, as she's made close friends with Mariner. <laughs> <laughs> Back in engineering, Tindy and Rutherford revealed they each smuggled a duffel bag full of T-88s back to the Cerritos. I mean, like, how many T-88s would they have had to snatch right, right, to get them into a duffel bag that they did not carry over with them. Right, right. So they got so they stole they, they a duffel stole, they stole a duffel bag, and, two duffel bags actually. And the T eighty eight. And the T eighty eights. And they were able to bring them all back to the Cerritos. That's I mean right. that's that's pretty stupid. And nobody asked them like Nobody. Hey, like, nobody. What's in those duffel bags? Hey, hey, you didn't come over with those, did you? <laughs> all right, so let's go to our general analysis of this episode. This episode forgoes a cold opening joke scene to give us more time to with the storylines that they're going to explore. And that actually is a good exchange when we think about it. Yeah. It's uh, because Cupid's errant arrow is funny as hell from start to finish. Um, if each of the remaining five episodes continue to be funnier than the last and still have more Star Trek references than the last episode... I'll feel that Star Trek's Lower Decks could be the best first season of any Star Trek series ever. Um, it hasn't failed to bring the laughs or give fans a slew of Easter eggs sprayed all throughout the episode. And for the Easter eggs, we'll um, include a few sources for that discussion in the podcast notes when, 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 you, when we actually upload this episode. In the show notes, you'll see some... Um, good videos that you'll be able to who'll do a pretty extensive listing of all of the um, Easter eggs all and right. we'll turn we'll turn our attention instead at this moment to the analysis of the characters in this in the storylines okay so let's take a deeper dive into the plot uh, first we're going to look at Boimler's girlfriend once again Boimler and Mariner are paired together in the main storyline and hilarity ensues <laughs> Originally, when we were introduced to the idea that Boimler had a girlfriend, it looked as if the comedy is going down a familiar path of it just being just a holodeck fantasy. We've seen how that played out before with other characters 
in other series, such, uh, such as uh, with Lieutenant Barkley uh, and Jordy LaForge on uh, The Next Generation, and even Captain Janeway on Voyager. Yeah. This time, it's just a head fake. Uh, this woman, Barb, turns out to be real. She's Lieutenant Barb Brinson of the USS Vancouver, and she's clearly out of Boimler's League. So why is she with Brad Ward? <laughs> the premise that Boimler could never have attracted someone like Barb is reinforced when we meet Lieutenant Jet, her former boyfriend. Uh, he's, you know, tall, dark, and handsome. He's well-built and the second coolest person on the, the Vancouver, according to Mariner. How could Barb go f- from Jet to Boimler? While we watch Brad become insanely jealous and fearful of losing Barb, Mariner gives us another possibility to follow. She becomes obsessed with, well, what could be wrong with Barb? Um, Is she an android, a shape-shifting alien, or possessed by a parasite? Either one of these approaches to the story would have been sufficient for a traditional half-hour comedy. However, Lower Decks interweaves both for maximum uh, comedic value. Even when, mis- in the, even when the mystery is solved and Mariner finds the neural parasite attached to Boimler, the story continues to surprise us. Mariner and Barb develop a friendship. Barb wasn't totally seduced by the pheromones the parasite gives off. She actually was attracted to Boimler, but her job is going to make it difficult to maintain the relationship. Also, Mariner's affection for Boimler seems much less paternalistic and more genuinely based on a real mutual affection between the two that has developed over time. In the B plot, we have Rutherford and Tindy and their adventures on the Vancouver. One of the personality traits Rutherford and Tindy share is a manic devotion to their work. And in spite of the rundown nature of the Cerritos, they both have an affection for the ship. However, they equally long for a chance to work on a more prestigious ship if possible. Since this is the B plot, we aren't given as much time with Rutherford and Tindy, but the time we do have highlights one glaring fact. With the exception of the Vulcan cybernetic implant, Rutherford and Tindy are almost the exact same character. So true. Yeah. And maybe they need to explore Tindy's Orion heritage. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's not like I haven't said this before. Right. It's, I know I, we sound like a broken record, but that's just a fact. Like, why is she an Orion? Yeah. Right. I mean, look, this is a problem I had with the Kelvin timeline, too. I mean, there was an Orion Starfleet cadet in those films, but how that was possible was never explained. I mean, in previous Star Trek shows, we've seen the Orions depicted as slave traders, pirates, and marauders. Um, Not exactly what you would call Starfleet material. That's right. I mean, even in um, the Enterprise, the females have been shown to be silent manipulators of an outwardly male-dominated society. I mean, this may be a sore sore point for for a a Star Trek nerd like me, but I don't think they're handling Tindy very well, and and they haven't given us much new about Rutherford either. That's right. 
I just I just want to say that the writers of this show have shown such a real skill at basing the comedy in the personality traits of the characters as they've developed. And and also understanding Star Trek uh, I mean, canon. really, really, and yeah. So, and so, again, so then why did they make her an Orion? Yeah, but there isn't much we know about that that's taught, that's been, been depicted in either one of these characters. You know, I mean, everything that we've learned... We've learned we learned about them in the very first episode. That's right. And there's really been not a whole lot of additional information that's been presented to us. Right. And there and here's the the other thing is both of them have shown themselves to be quite competent under crises right. in other situations. So what distinguishes them? I mean, if this was a regular yep. half an hour comedy. One of these characters would be gone by the end of the first season, right? Right, because, because you wouldn't want to keep them on the payroll. That's right. That's right. You know, I mean, so it's just that. I mean, that's exactly what happened to Tasha Yar. Right. 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 I mean, they said we got her and Worf. We don't need both of them. We don't need both. And so, the, and she wasn't really happy with how she was being depicted, and so they, so she left. Right. So, I, I just, I, so I'm hoping that the for the remainder of the first season, we're gonna, they're going to give us more to love about these two characters because right now they haven't done a very effective job. I, I agree. Well, let's turn to the C-plot, yes. which dealt with the moon of Mixus Three. The loss of the code opening in this episode gave us time for a real treat of a C-plot. Originally, Captain Freeman was presented with yet another embarrassing experience by the comparison of a high-quality and prestigious Vancouver ship over that of the Cerritos. But as the episode progresses, it becomes clear that Freeman is in charge of the diplomatic portion of the mission to Mixus Three, and much more capable uh, to handle the situation. Yeah. It was funny watching as she explodes at the lone Mixian holdout and then proceeds to order that his decaying mood explode as well. It was short, filled with a lot of rapid-fire jokes and, well pl- and a well-placed expletive that was uh, blipped out for effect. But once again... What it clearly showed was Captain Freeman's keen expertise and leadership. She and First Officer Ransom have both displayed behavior that provides for a great deal of humor without ever undercutting their ability to command in serious situations. The Cerritos may be imperfect, but it's not the wackiest ship in Starfleet. And, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. I like the fact that they, they, they we don't lose the comedy for the sake, you know, for the sake of being, you know, in Star Trek, Star Trek format. Right, you know? right. But but when things get dire, they we believe that these characters are capable of of stepping up to the challenge yeah. and, and achieving what they need to achieve. Yeah, they can handle their business. Right. I mean, yes, yeah. they're they're all they all have personality traits that kind of you know make them a little manic, and and that's where the comedy comes from. Right. But at the same time. They know what to do when it when it comes down to the brass tacks. I mean, they really can handle their business. Yep. So let's talk about our favorite Easter eggs. Okay, mine should be obvious. <laughs> <laughs> there, there should be no surprise to anybody who listens to this podcast that my favorite Easter egg was seeing the USS 
Kito docked at one of the Deep Space Nine pylons. I mean, my joy was enhanced when we saw Mariner in her wonderful little hairdo, I might say, wearing the DS9 era uniforms with the gray shoulders and whatnot, mm-hmm. and the red undershirt. Uh, Lower Decks has pulled references, storylines, and sight gags from every previous series, yeah. including the animated series, right. which I really appreciate. And and the fact that this one had has had these references is giving me so much happiness. (laughs) I can't wait to see what other goodies are going to be shown for us in uh, specifically from DS9 in the remaining five episodes. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that too. And so here's my Easter egg among the many choices that I had in this episode, choosing my favorite was also an easy task for me. I chose the M113 creature whose picture can be seen as one of the images of legendary Star Trek shapeshifters on Mariner's evidence board. The M113 creature is a scraggly-looking, long-haired monster with sunken eyes and a round, protruding mouth that is reminiscent of the monsters one would find in a B-movie of the 1950s. I chose this Easter egg because it is a reference to the very first episode of the original series entitled The Man Trap. And and that alien better known as a salt succubus. (laughs) (laughs) So the episode um, The Man Trap focuses on Dr. McCoy, who is reunited with an old flame of his named Nancy Crater. Although she's married, McCoy still is attracted to her. But what he doesn't know is that a year earlier, the real Nancy was killed by the M113 creature who can transform itself into another being by reading your mind. Mm. The creature needs salt to survive and sucks salt from other beings if there is not enough salt supplies around for it to ingest. And the trouble with them sucking the salt is that it kills the person yes. who uh, the creature attacks. Yeah, that's just the one that one side effect that happens. Uh, right. Yeah. So despite the cheap special effects, I do have a soft spot for this episode. There are really fine dramatic performances by DeForest Kelly as McCoy and guest star Gene Ball as Nancy Crater. Also, among the secondary characters, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura plays a prominent role. Since this was the first episode of the series, I thought she would get many more opportunities like this one, but that was not to come to pass. However, after watching The Man Trap, I became hooked on Star Trek for what eventually became a lifelong passion. Okay, now let's move on to other Star Trek news. And the first item up is really exciting. It's Star Trek Day. Wow. Tuesday, September 8th. Um, CBS All Access is beaming up Trekkies all over the universe to Star Trek Day the celebration, which is a virtual event that's going to honor the 54th anniversary of the day Star Trek, the original series, debuted September 8th, 1966. The 24-hour free event will take place on Tuesday and will include panels with cast and creative teams for all the nine series, 
throughout the Star Trek uh, franchise. It also includes exclusive news, mm. um, a marathon of episodes, mm. and uh, and also opportunities to give back. Mm. There will be a Star Trek Day streaming marathon from CBS All Access starting at 12 a.m. Pacific Time, which is also 3 a.m. Eastern Time. Mm-hmm. The marathon will be available for free in to U.S. audiences on CBS All Access and include a curated list of episodes from Star Trek Picard, Voyager, the original series, Lower Decks, Next Generation, the animated series, Discovery, Enterprise, Deep Space Nine, and Short Treks. Oh, also programming will include panels, Gary. Really? Uh, yes, and that, that will so? that will start at twelve p.m. Pacific time, three p.m. Eastern time. So Wesley Crusher, or you know, is actually the actor Will Wheaton, yeah. uh, and Micah Burton, who is the daughter of Lavar Burton, will serve as a host of the free panels and programming that will reunite iconic cast members and creative minds from nearly every single franchise under the Star Trek umbrella. In addition to stories from past and present, there will be news from the CBS All Access Star Trek universe that you'll want to hear, but we'll be sure to um, to talk about it in our next episode. Sure. So, so the Star Trek panels will include... Uh, for, this, for Star Trek Discovery... It'll be series star Sonequa Martin-Green, David Ajala, and the co-showrunners, executive producer Alex Kurtzman, and Michelle Paradise. Now, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which we're all excited about, they'll have the series stars Anson Mount, Rebecca Romaine, and Ethan Peck. Also, executive producers Akiva Goldsman, Henry Alonzo Myers, and co-executive producers... Akila Cooper and Davy Perez. For Star Trek Enterprise, hmm. series star Scott Bakula, wow. Linda Park, John Billingsley, Dominique Keating, Anthony Montgomery, and Connor Trenier. Yeah, who is my favorite right, character. Right. Yeah. You know, he played Trip on uh, Enterprise. Yeah, you had a lot of Trip love. <laughs> then up next is Star Trek D Space Nine panel which includes series star Terry Farrell, Alexander Sadiq, Armin Shimmerman, Nana Visitor, Sarah Lofton, and executive producer Ira Stephen Bear. All right, so then they're going to do an original series panel with series star George Takei and the CEO of Roddenberry Entertainment, Rod Roddenberry. Yeah, that ought to be really interesting. <laughs> And then we'll go to Lower Decks with uh, the voice cast members, Tawny Newsome, who plays Mariner, Jack Quaid, who plays uh, Boimler, yep. Noel Wells, who is Tindy, and Eugene Cordero, who plays Rutherford, and the series creator, showrunner, and executive producer, Mike McMahon. Right. Up next, you'll have Star Trek Voyager, which will be, this will be part of the celebration of their 25th anniversary. So you have series star Kate Mulgrew, Robert Picardo, Robert McNeil, Garrick Wang, Tim Russ, and Ethan Phillips. And then finally, they're going to combine two shows. 
which makes sense. They're going to combine the Picard show and Next Generation, and they'll have uh, the legendary cast members, Patrick's, or I should say Sir Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick Stewart. And Jonathan Frakes. Right, 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 right. So, in addition to that, on September 8th, for every person that tweets hashtag Star Trek United Gives, CBS All Access will donate $1 to organizations that champion equality, social justice, and the pursuit of scientific advancements. Organizations will include the NAACP's Legal Defense and Education Fund, as well as the Equal Justice Initiative. Ah, so I'm definitely going to do that. Yeah, and so we really hope that if you can also do that, because the more dollars that we can get going towards these organizations, the more good they, they can do in the world. And I think that that's really, if you're a Star Trek fan, that's exactly what you want. That's right. So so let's move on to our next item, which we have news that there's going to be other new char- characters on Star Trek Discovery. Yes. And so according to StarTrek.com, season three of Star Trek Discovery will introduce the Star Trek franchise's first non-binary and transgender characters. The Star Trek universe first non-binary character is Adira, played by Blue Del Barrio. Adira is highly intelligent with a confidence and self-assurance well beyond their years. They will find a new home on the USS Discovery and form an unexpected bond with Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets and Dr. Hugh Colbert. The first transgender character is Gray, portrayed by Ian Alexander. Gray is empathetic, warm, and eager to fulfill his lifelong dream of being a trill host, but he will have to adapt when his life takes an unexpected turn. The person playing Adira, Blue Del Barrio, is a non-binary actor who uses they and them as her pronouns. Del Barrio was in their final year of study at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts when they auditioned for the role of Adira. Del Barrio has been acting in theater and short films since the age of seven, and they're incredibly excited to make this television acting debut in season three of Discovery. The person playing Gray Ian Alexander is a 19-year-old actor who uses they, them, and he, him pronouns. He is best known for their roles as Buck Vu in the Netflix series The OA and Lev in Naughty Dog's video game The Last of Us Part Two. They are the first out transgender Asian-American person to act on television. They are also an advocate for transgender equality, racial justice, and mental health awareness for LGBTQ plus youth. Okay, next up, James Darren. So, and this is good news. This is really good news. According to trektoday.com, actor and singer James Darren is recovering from a bout of COVID-19. So the good news is that he's recovering. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Uh, Darren is best known to Deep Space Nine fans at everyone's favorite holographic saloon singer, bartender, and therapist, Vic Fontaine. The actor is 
84 years old, which puts him in the high-risk group when it comes to the virus. And Deep Space showrunner Iris Stephen Bear said via Twitter that he had just spoke with Jimmy, and he's a fighter, he's on the recovery road, but all of you at Star Trek and at Star Trek CBS and at Star Trek DS9, Doc, folks out there should say a prayer or two just to keep all bases covered. <laughs> we love you, Jimmy. Uh, and Darren, Darren um, posted his own Facebook page saying that he was feeling thankful and feels much better. So that's really good. Yeah, to we're glad to hear that. We would like him to, you know, when it, one day when it's time to come, that is natural causes right, exactly. and that he you know, doesn't pass away with something that is so ravishing as the coronavirus. Yeah, so. here in here in Michigan, specifically here in Detroit, we know a lot of people who have passed. Right. And um I mean, in fact almost twenty five percent of all the deaths in the state of Michigan happened to Detroiters. And so it's just been pretty devastating. So we're glad that James Darren is on the road to recovery. So here's a bit of discovery news. In a recent interview, Sonequa Martin-Green reflected on the character arc of the person that she plays, Michael Burnham. If you recall, at the end of season two, the discovery of Michael jumped 930 years into the future. However, they arrived at different places. While the discovery crew have each other, Michael initially must spend a lot of time alone as she attempts to be reunited with the crew. According to Martin Green, It's intriguing because in the time that I spent alone, I marched to the beat of my own drum, in a way. But then I've also always been so duty-oriented. So there's been this interesting progression of not having to work not having to be so principle-based, but to just be on this mission to find my crew. We see what it feels like for me to get a little rougher around the edges. And the coming back to the discovery, it's tough to come back, surprisingly, shockingly. It's, it's tough to come back and to come back to the rigidity that I once knew that was once home to me. I've gotten to live in a world where things are looser. I've gotten to feel what that feels like. So it's interesting because it's not an easy transition back to the crew. So so both Gary and I are definitely looking forward to the third season of Star Trek Discovery, which will premiere on Thursday, October 15th. When? Uh, Thursday, October 15th. All right. So new episodes of Star Trek Discovery's 13-episode third season will be available on demand weekly on Thursdays, exclusively on CBS All Access in the United States. So we there's also one other bit of news that we want to tell you, and that is about Star Trek magazine. The UK's Titan Comics is back to publishing Star Trek magazine. Titan has been publishing five issues per year since 2006. Ooh. Issue number 76 features articles and images on the Picard show, Lower Decks, and season three of Discovery. The magazine is available on newsstands or by print or digital subscription. The magazine is a bit pricey, 
But if you are interested, go to titan-comics.com. So in closing, we'll be back next week with a review of episode six of Lower Decks. Until that time, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, um, at Facebook, and at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where you can find additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and aspects of also other aspects of the show. Um, also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper. Yeah.